Welcome to episode 131, Body Justice for Clinicians, Evaluating Clinical Bias, Thin Idealism, and Fat Shaming, featuring Paula Atkinson, Licensed Independent Clinical Social Worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Irias, and I'm excited today to be joined by Paula Atkinson. Uh, Today, we're going to be talking about um, this concept of health at every size and body positivity and topics that, I mean, really, I think, affect all of us. And Paula is a licensed independent clinical social worker out of Washington, D.C., and this is her area of specialization. So I'm delighted to spend this time with her today and, and learn from her expertise. Thank you for joining us, Paula. Very excited to be here. Thanks. So why don't you tell us a little bit more about you and about your background and how you came to have this specialization? Yeah, I think I told you when we met, I did not mean to have this specialization. I am actually in recovery is sort of the language that I still use uh, for eating disorders and um, body issues myself. I was diagnosed as quote unquote obese, and I'll explain later why I put that in quotes, uh, when I was a kid. And then I starved myself to almost death um, at an early age. And then when I went into social work school, I was like, I'm never working with eating disorders. And then uh, when I was doing other work and other people were working with people with eating disorders and I would hear about what they were saying to the clients and patients with eating disorders, I would be livid. <laughs> I would go crazy and I would be like, give them to me. So that's how I started doing this work. Um I got into specifically body justice and fat liberation and fat acceptance and um, that area of it in terms of a social justice bent um, about a a decade ago as I realized that we have to bring the macro into the room. We have to bring the macro into um, our work with people who are struggling with food and bodies um, because to do so is kind of I think it's irresponsible to not bring in uh, the rampant fat phobia um, when we're working with people who are struggling with quote unquote body image. So for you, it sounds like this was personal and then it became professional. And now it's all those things merged together with also this commitment to social awareness and social justice. Exactly. Yeah. Wonderful. So today we're going to be talking about body justice and even what that means. So why don't we start there? What is body justice? What does that mean? So body justice is the belief that every body deserves respect as that body exists in this moment. It uh, Body justice is the belief that everybody's allowed to do whatever they want with their body that everybody's health is nobody's business and that health is not something that everybody owes the world. Um, And also that health can be achieved at any size and that whatever size somebody's body is, that person is neither inferior nor superior to anyone else based on body shape or body size. Where does this concept of body justice come from? Well, the fat acceptance movement was actually started in the 60s um, with the civil rights movement. And then it sort of went underground for a while. Um, I mean, not it didn't actually go underground. It just um, was uh, a lot of us didn't know about it. And then it sort of became, I'm sure everybody knows about body positivity. And so body positivity um, resurfaced with the Internet and with social media, which is so great. Um, I would say about 10 years ago is when body positivity sort of became a thing, hashtag um, body positivity. And then it sort of got co-opted by capitalism and by um, a lot of times like curvy white people, (laughs) Um, you know, which is great. And body positivity is a a great um, introduction. But then, you know, I think what we need is more radicalization. I believe we always need more radicalization. But like the the body positivity kind of got sort of muted and um, 
how do you say like thinned out you know I've, I've heard one fat liberation activist talk about how like body positivity is kind of all lives matter and like fat liberation and fat acceptance and body justice is black lives matter um which i think is a really good um uh, comparison that body positivity kind of got is not is not truly what we want and a lot of times body positivity is still about aesthetics right it's still about um I, my body is beautiful or, or, um, all bodies are beautiful. It's still about like that. My body is attractive when other people look at it. Mm. Whereas body justice is more about how do I, what is the experience of my body? What is my, that my experience of my body is more important than your experience of looking at my body. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And these are, are really interesting concepts. So for me, as someone who doesn't work very much in the eating disorder world, and, and I have clients who have disordered eating, but for me, a lot of this language is new. Can you mm-hmm. talk about even the use of the word fat or some of the words yeah. that, you know, that that for me is a word that makes my eye twitch a little bit because uh-huh. I would never, I would never use, I don't use that word. Um, right. So tell me like for you as someone who's in this world, what do these different words mean in the way that you use them and intend that they're heard by by people? Yeah. So that's really good. I know, uh, I'm glad you brought that up because that when I use the word fat, liberally. <laughs> and I know that um, it it can make people very uncomfortable. So, you know, part of the fat liberation body justice movement is is taking the the charge out of the word fat because fat is the exact same as tall. It's just a descriptor. There's nothing inherently bad about fat, like adipose tissue fat and about bodies that are fat. Um, and so when when we use the word to describe people or or in terms of fat liberation where we are taking the charge out of it because the belief mm. that that a fat body is inferior to a thin body makes us unwilling or unwanting to use the word fat but if we if we really do believe that the word fat is completely equal to the word tall then why wouldn't we use the word fat now i also don't go around calling people fat because is, there is still um, rampant fat phobia in our culture. But when people identify as fat, then I use that word with them. And generally, when I'm not describing a person, I use the word fat quite often um, to to kind of to um, make people uncomfortable, but also so that, you know, part of why I wanted to do this podcast was that I really, really, really want more clinicians and more mental health professionals to look at their own internalized fat phobia, because I think it's irresponsible for us not to be looking at that in the same way that hopefully more and more um, non-BIPOC um, clinicians are looking at their internalized racism. And we're looking at all of our internalized bias more and more often right now, hopefully. Um, and I think, you know, fat phobia is such a huge, we're like steeped in it in our culture. Um, so for us not to be looking at that and then to be working with people who have quote unquote body image issues or disordered eating, I think, I think it's just, it's, it's so important. I can't think of the uh, the right word for how important it is. Okay. So tell me about fat phobia. Give me examples yeah. of that. Give me examples of that as they might a- appear in therapy room. Like tell me more mm-hmm. so that we understand really when you use that phrase, what does that mean? So fat phobia is the belief that humans who live in bodies that are big, humans who live in bodies that have a lot of adipose tissue on them are inferior to people who live in bodies that have less adipose tissue on them. And so we believe that in our culture, we're, we're taught, we're brainwashed to believe that f- fat people are lazy, they're immoral, they're stupid, they're um, have terrible willpower. You know, it's really interesting that that the things that we really value in in our you know in Western culture um, is like individualism and willpower and like all of this very patriarchal stuff. Um, and we believe that fat people don't have any of the things that we value as as a country and as as in Western culture. So that's what fat phobia is. I mean, I can give you 
I, you know, I teach a body justice class at, um, and I could give you the history of it, but I don't know if you want all of that. I would actually love to hear a little bit more uh, and not maybe the full history, but the Cliff Notes version, um, because I think the framing is helpful to see how this has been um, approached through different um, ages and through different parts of society. Yeah, good. I, I mean, I think what's important to know about the history of fat phobia is that it's deeply rooted in racism. So um, Sabrina Strings wrote an incredible book that I uh, highly recommend called Fearing the Black Body. And it talks about the racist roots of fat phobia. And, you know, fat phobia is, is, um, was started by in the same time that like race science, quote unquote, was happening, where there was actual like scientists working to prove that people with dark skin were inferior morally, um, physically, and all of these ways to people with light skin. And at the exact same time, there was this huge push to not look like the people that were being stolen and brought over and, and sold into slavery. And so, you know, those, the idea that those people were, um, they were, uh, couldn't control themselves with food and they couldn't control themselves when it came to sex. And they were very sensual and they were really into, um, deliciousness and, and music and sex and all of these things that are actually are quite fun. Um, <laughs> we, you know, as white people, as Europeans, we wanted to, um, distinguish ourselves from them. And part of that was to stay thin, right? Like, look how austere I can be. I don't need to give in to the desires of my body. I don't need to give in to my body's needs. I'm very different from, from these people. And so fat phobia is really, really racist. <laughs> um, and it started about 120 years ago. And then, uh, and then what happened right around the turn of the century, or actually like more than 120 years ago. And then when things started happening, like the, the, um, uh, industrial revolution and we started buying clothes in stores and we could see the sizes of clothes and then a weight became a thing like there we could get on a scale and we could see a measurement of our body's gravitational pull to the earth which is a terrible measure of health but we seem to still be really interested in it um then we could compare our body to other bodies and that's when we started getting into this idea that when a, a body is thin it means that that person the owner of that body is living correctly and when a body is big that means that the per the owner of that body is living incorrectly and we still believe that even though that's scientifically false, what we what we know about bodies is they just come in different sizes in the same way that hair comes in different textures and hands come in different sizes and eyes come in different colors. We know that bodies just come in different sizes, but we still believe that that your body looks like that because you're living in a certain way and your body looks like that because you're living in a certain way. And that's actually not true. Tell me more about that, about that idea that's not true. So we make these assumptions that say if you fit in a size eight or below or whatever it is, then you must have these characteristics or you must right. do X, Y, Z. Tell me more about that. And kind of, I guess what I'm wanting is to really unpack some of these uh, messages that we've all gotten from our culture about the the dangers of being overweight. Yeah. So um, Dr. Tracy Mann, who's out of the, um, Minnesota, runs something called the Eating Lab. And sh what she has discovered after years and years and years is that, um, and she actually just studies people eating. And what she discovered is that like over the course of a month, everybody, no matter w what shape your body is, everybody eats basically the same amount. And so Again, the idea that fat people or people in larger bodies are just like sitting at home stuffing their faces and thin people are, you know, just eating kale smoothies and going to Pilates. Like there is some truth to that, right? Like a lot, so much of fat phobia is racist and classist, exceedingly classist. Um, but the truth is that that most people just eat pretty much the same amount. Now, the only re the only reason why somebody wouldn't eat like precisely or around the same amount is if they have an eating disorder. And that usually stems from the fact that somebody starved themselves in order to have a body that's more acceptable. 
And then usually what that leads to is, you know, the starving and binging cycles that most of us and most of us clinicians are familiar with that people come in with. So to to back up to these ideas about racism and classism and the difference of, of people's bodies based on race or ethnicity, culture, things like that, as you've mentioned, I mean, this is deeply rooted in our society. And mm-hmm. when it comes to clinicians that are seeing clients regardless of those clients' body shape, body size, what are some of the biases that you see coming up for clinicians that that we need to really illuminate, just like you mentioned about for a person who is white or European American um, in their history, being more aware of like, how does somebody move through the world based on that identity? Yeah, I think, I don't know if I'm going to answer your question well, but I think what came up for me is, is thinking about, you know, for so, so often, you know, and this is a huge grossly gross generalization, but so often clinicians are, you know, white middle to upper class people. And, you know, um, and because it takes a lot of schooling, we tend to not be 19 years old. So I think for so often, those are the people who have been brainwashed to believe that to have a thin body means that I'm doing life correctly, right? Like I, I, you know, and there is a devotion to diet culture. There is a devotion to thin idealism um, that we may not even know we have, but there is that. And so we bring that into the room with a client. And so when a client comes in and they live in a fat body or they are struggling with, you know, binging or they're right. I think for us as clinicians to be aware that, that, that I have been, you know, so often it's generational, so often, and a lot of, a lot, the majority of clinicians are women, you know, so often the way women relate to each other is like calorie talk and fat talk and all of that stuff that I absolutely despise, (laughs) Um, you know, and so I think, I think as clinicians, we just have to be aware of our devotion to thin idealism. And it's not our fault, not in a, not in a like shameful way, but just to be aware that like, oh, I, I do value my thinness if you live in a thin body, or I do value thinness, or I do value um, eating a lot of vegetables, or I do believe that there's good food and bad food, or I do believe that people in fat bodies are obvious, you know, like, just just become aware of these, these belief systems that it's, we're so steeped in it. And it's so charged um, for most of us. And I think, you know, and I hear it, I hear it when I go to conferences with other clinicians, right? Like the, like, oh my God, I'm going to be so bad and eat this cake, right? Like even seemingly innocuous things that we all have been taught are just how we live. We have to be really, we have to be really careful um, and to start recognizing this or else we're doing a disservice to ourselves, right? Because it's, it's not fun to live in, in diet culture. Um, and, you know, we're not actually we're not actually bringing the space for our clients to be able to heal if we've not healed ourselves. I'm glad that you broke down some examples of that. And even that idea of being at a conference and someone saying like, I'm being bad, I think that really highlights just the pervasiveness. As yeah. you're talking about this, and so you've you've mentioned the intersectionality here in this foundation in racism and classism. So the, the um, impact of socioeconomic status on weight and on, you know, body shape or body shame. What about sexism and misogyny? That's that other layer that I can hear is right there. Tell me a little bit more about that. Because I mean, our culture is like you, I think the difference between looking at a men's health magazine or a women's health magazine, quote unquote, and what we would find in terms of the articles, especially 10 or 15 years ago, but still now would be starkly different. So tell me also that layer when we're looking at it through the lens of, of, of gender. Yeah, I, th- I'm glad you said that. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I would never want to be accused of saying that men don't suffer from fat phobia as well, right? Like it's, it's really, it's also really horrible to be a, a man in a fat body in this culture. However, <laughs> it's really, really bad to be a woman in a big body in this culture. You know, there's the, the, the idea that, that thin women are, desirable, they're valuable, they're doing things right, right? They're, they're not giving in to, I mean, it's so steeped in stuff in, 
icky stuff, right? It, they're not giving in to their desires. Um, they're good um, is is everywhere. And I, I, it's also so, like I was just saying, I hear it so often. And I, you know, I, I teach at George Washington University. My office is right next to the campus. So I, you know, I go, I go to the Trader Joe's that all of the, all the kids go to. So I hear it all the time of, of, you know, the, I'm so fat. No, I'm so fat. Right. And it's a way that, that women have been taught to like connect with each other is to talk about weight and to talk about it. And what's so sad for me when that happens is that, all of that is about the male gaze, right? All of that is is women trying to connect with each other in a way that's about men, that's about whether or not I'm desirable, because whether or not I'm desirable and whether or not a man wants to have sex with me means that I'm a valuable human on this planet, right? Like you can't disconnect fat phobia, thin idealism and diet culture from the patriarchy, from patriarchal systems of if a woman is desirable and if if a woman is somebody that that men want to have sex with that that then she's a more valuable human being than a woman that men don't want to have sex with so yeah it's it's everywhere there was really an um an incredible study done by somebody that i can't remember where they um did they asked all of these college um women to uh participate and and look at three different women, right? So one fictional woman was saying, oh my God, I'm so fat. I hate my body. Uh, one woman was saying like, I'm not fat, I'm not thin, but you know, I, I look really cute in this dress. And one woman was saying something else. And, and all of the college women wanted to have, wanted to be friends with the, the, the woman who was saying, I'm not fat, I'm not thin, but I look really cute today. And what it showed is that I think women are taught that they can connect by hating their bodies. But what it actually does is it just makes everybody feel more isolated and more self-conscious and feel exceedingly disconnected. Um, so it's really sad that that's the way that women have been taught to to connect with each mm -hmm. other. To relate. Mm -hmm. um Obviously, you and I could do a deep dive on any one of these facets and talk probably for hours about it. And you have a class sure. just discussing that. So I'm sure you do. Um, yeah. So acknowledging there's a lot here that we're not talking about. Um, yes. When when we keep all of these things in mind and this idea that you know these these norms about our appearance, about our self-control, about our place in society are so impactful for our body image. When you talk about body justice, then mm -hmm. how, how do we as clinicians embrace that ourselves, that concept? Mm -hmm. And through the same vein, how do we support clients in that concept? Um, because it is just so deeply rooted. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad you asked this. So I, the way that, you know, my dream my fantasy for how clients or how clinicians would work with this is, you know, when a client comes in with quote unquote body image struggles, it's not there, you know, it's not their problem. <laughs> I, what I want is for, is for us all to recognize that you don't have body image issues because there's something wrong with you. You have body image issues because there's something wrong with the culture. And so the language that I, I use very, you know, um, uh, strong language and probably hyperbolic language on purpose, um, because I want the clients to know, right, it's not your fault. There's nothing wrong with your body. There's never been anything wrong with your body ever, right? Like you have been brainwashed to believe that you're, you would be a more valuable human being if your body were smaller. And I am so sorry that you have been brainwashed to believe that. But we're not gonna we're not gonna work on your body image without being hyper aware of the problem with the right, culture the and the problem with society. Exactly. And so so often with clients who identify as female, I one of my favorite interventions is seething feminist rage. <laughs> and we have we want the anger and the energy to go out to go out into the culture, right? And I do a lot of work with specifically, um, again, women, people who identify as female about like, when was the first time you thought that your body was wrong? 
And like, when you think about that, I mean, I know for me, it's really intense. I, like I said, I was identified, I was diagnosed as, as quote unquote obese at a young age. And I remember being very young and knowing that my body was wrong and I should be ashamed of it. And now if I look at pictures or if I think about that little five-year-old, I'm so angry. <laughs> like, how dare somebody allow her to believe that there was something wrong with her perfect little body? And that's the anger and the rage and the fire and the passion that I want to ignite in my clients to to let them know that like their their quote unquote body image issues are not something that we're just going to we're just going to fix, you know, because they should just love their body. Yeah. Right. It's it's so much more. It's so more complicated than that. It's interesting to say. So, of course, I think every therapist has conversations with their clients about confidence, about their body, about exercise, you know, all of these things that are packed into this topic. And I've had the experience. So I had a client once say to me, you know, I, I looked in the mirror and I noticed that I was saying disparaging body or, you know, disparaging things about my body. And so then I, you know, said to myself, well, stop and start saying really nice things. And it was like really funny to me because I'm like, okay, a part of me can totally acknowledge like the CBT value and what's happening here and like thought stopping right. and redirection and all of that. But then the other part of me is like, hold on back up. Like, let's, there's, there's a lot more happening here. And I don't think the yeah. antidote is to just say something different when we look in the mirror. Like, I'm guessing right. it's a hell of a lot more complicated than that. Um, yeah. So, Polly, you're nodding as I'm saying this. Talk to me about that and like how you kind of unpack this to not oversimplify these concepts that are really complicated. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I love that. I mean, that's a really lovely foundation, right? To just start, you know, saying nice things to yourself in the mirror. I think that's awesome. But like, yeah, that's like just the tip of the iceberg yeah. in terms of, of what's below the surface. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, you know, obviously I have quote, unquote, I've had quote unquote body image issues. But part of that also is because my body has been all of the sizes. Um, and, you know, and what I realize I have, I have the privilege of knowing because my body has been almost every size that I have the privilege of knowing my body was never the problem. No matter what size it was, my brain said the same crap. Excuse my language. So like, that means that I know that I have been brainwashed by a culture to believe that like, oh, well, once my body is the right size, then suddenly right. my anxiety is going to go away. Then suddenly my brain is going to say the right things. Then suddenly I'm going to feel confident. Then suddenly I'm going to be at peace. But it never happened because right. it was never my body that was the problem. And so that's, for me, that's the that's the key with clients is, is not looking in the mirror and being like, oh, no, my body is cute and how cute are my thighs, which is, I mean, wonderful. Sure, because I'm sure your thighs are cute. Everybody's thighs are cute. Um, but more importantly, to recognize that like, oh, this is not, this is not just my issue. This is not my body's issue to solve. It's not my body's problem to solve. It's, it's my, it's my, it's my brain. And, and it's, it's, and it's not a, not to pathologize it, right? Not to, not to put a diagnosis, diagnosis on it, but to realize that like, oh no, I'm sorry, I have been, and I say this to clients, I am so sorry that you've been brainwashed to believe that you will be at peace once your body is the right size. I promise you that will not happen because it doesn't. Over and over and over, it doesn't. I think the depth of the work that you do, I mean, obviously it's through your own experience, but being able to point out kind of that discrepancy instead of just co-signing and basically being like, okay, okay, if we if we say positive things to ourselves in the mirror, then we're going to fix this problem, you know, quote right. unquote problem, but that it's much deeper than that. Um, one of the questions I have for you, so... We are in the United States, one of the most overweight countries. You know, right now we know, for example, research just came out. So you and I are recording this in March of 2021. So we're still in the pandemic, maybe mm -hmm. coming into a third wave. We don't know. But now we know mm -hmm. that countries that have um, more obesity are that people are dying more frequently from coronavirus complications than other countries. So how do you, as someone who works in the area of body justice, come to integrate this information where there are direct mortality-related consequences of obesity? How do you bring that into body positivity and kind of yeah. allow these two to exist 
in the dialectic, if you will, to exist simultaneously? Yeah, <clears throat> great question. So, um, so first we have to like take apart obesity and overweight and all of these concepts that we have. So, you know, with the word overweight, like over what weight? Over a weight that I, an insurance company has told me that my body should be based on what? Right. Based on what research, based on, you know, if we know scientifically that bodies just come in different shapes and sizes, how what what does overweight mean? Again, we don't say over tall. We don't say that there's tall and there's over tall. We just we say overweight. And so the idea that all bodies can and should be the same shape and the same weight is nonsensical. And yet we have an entire medical establishment based on this concept. And it's just not, it's not real. Also the word obese, the reason I put it in quotes is because it's measured based on something called the BMI. We all know what the BMI is. Um, the BMI is, you know, medical snake oil. Um, and a lot of people don't know that it was invented by an astronomer in 1830 in Belgium. And he invented it. Uh, his name is Adolf Quitlet. And he invented it to do what I was talking about before, race science. So he invented the Quitlet equation so that he could, um, again, prove that he was only doing um, uh, studies, I will put studies in quotes too, studies on like 30 to 35-year-old guys in Belgium. And what are guys in Belgium? White. So he was doing studies on Belgium dudes um, using the Quitlet equation. And, uh, and to prove, again, that those people, those Belgian 30 to 35-year-old dudes were superior to other people. So then in the 70s, uh, Ansel Keys, who did a really a lot of incredible work, um, he was the guy who, who kind of discovered that when you eat a lot of red meat, it's not good for your heart. Um, he was doing huge studies, again, on, um, on heart disease, and he brought that back. But he, uh, he brought the Quitlet equation in, and he called it the BMI. But he was using it on these huge studies, and he said uh, forever that the BMI should never be used as an individual measurement of health. And yet we use it as an individual measurement of health. Um, because it's easy, because it comes out to this really round, cute number, because it's easy to put people in categories. And then who comes up with these categories, right? Like this idea that if, you're, if your BMI is this number to this number, you're in this category. And if your BMI is this number to this number, you're in this category. Like that's not actually how bodies work. Um, also the BMI doesn't take into account age, gender, race, socioeconomic, it doesn't take into account anything, right? The actual equation is your weight um, divided by your height squared. You know, why do you square the height? There is no scientific reason to square your height. Like, it's just nonsense. Um, also, in 1998, they just moved the categories. So 20 million Americans went to bed at a normal weight and woke up overweight, right? Like, it's all kind of, it's not kind of, it's all nonsensical when you really think about it. So we have to start with that. We just have to start out with the knowledge that BMI and these categories of morbidly obese and obese, this none of it's real. It's complete nonsense. Then to actually answer your question, Beth, <laughs> um, like uh, the, the co correlation between like big bodies and, and death of COVID, um, there's, there was one study in the UK and there's been one study here that shows that again, just like Lindo Bacon and Lucy Affermore found out in their Health at Every Size, their their paper, um, Health at Every Size, and then the book, which I highly, highly recommend, that when you control for things like, are you an essential essential worker? Do, can you do you have to work outside of the home? Um, do you have access to fresh vegetables at your grocery store? Do, uh, do you have your own car or do you have to take public transportation? When you control for those variables, the correlation between fatness and death of COVID completely disappears. But we don't want to talk about class in our culture. We don't want to talk about class. So we talk about weight and we talk about fatness instead. So what you're saying is basically this oversimplification that has allowed us to ignore what are confounding variables when we're looking at the research. Exactly. 
Exactly. It's so much easier to like blame fat people for being fat than it is for us as a culture to look at classism and to look at poverty and to look at institutionalized racism. So when we're so if we zoom out from COVID and like, let's say we're talking about heart disease or diabetes, your client goes to the doctor and the doctor says you've put on 15 pounds since your physical last year. And Mm -hmm. I'm concerned about your weight because it is contributing to an increase in your blood sugar and you are now pre-diabetic. I'm worried about you developing type 2 diabetes. So then a client Mm -hmm. comes into session and talks to you about this. How do you talk to somebody about that? Like not how does anybody else, but how does Paula talk to somebody about that? (laughs) Um, Well, I I would probably use a lot of swear words, so I'm going to try to edit myself. But yes, I would... I would talk to my client about actual measures of health. So if there is, you know, if they act, what happens a lot of times when people live in big bodies is that they, um, across the board, significantly get less actual tests. So weight and specifically BMI, because BMI is, you know, can only be found with weight, is a horrible measure of health in the sense that it's a horrible indicator of how long somebody will live. If that's how we're defining health, right? That's the thing too, is our culture is really bad about um, defining Mm. what health actually is, like what is health? but if we're if we're defining health as as how long somebody lives, um, weight and and BMI is a horrible predictor of that. And to be honest, people who are in the quote unquote overweight category live longer across the board than people in the quote unquote normal category. Um, but uh, so then I would ask them if if they did actual tests, like did they test your heart rate? Did they test your triglycerides? Did they test your cholesterol? Did they what test did you actually do? If they did all of those tests, which usually the answer is no, usually a person just gets weighed and then gets shamed, then I would say, um, great. So what all the studies show is that when you do not focus on weight, when you actually focus on um, behaviors that can bring your heart rate down, that can bring your triglycerides down, that can, you know, if you actually focus on those numbers, health improves dramatically. Sometimes somebody's body gets smaller when they um, incorporate those behaviors. Sometimes bodies, those bodies don't get smaller, but always their health actually improves. What we know is that when we focus only on weight as an indicator of health, everybody's health gets worse. Once again, what you're saying is an oversimplification in exactly. order to basically come come up with some guideline. And right. you know, our, our listeners know that my world is in utilization review, so I'm intimately familiar with level of care guidelines and yeah. these levels. And in a past life, I worked for a surgeon and in order to meet medical necessity criteria for a particular procedure needing to say, well, you know, this level is X over Y and then it qualifies for you know this procedure. Mm-hmm. There, I understand this element of like there has to be a cutoff somewhere and we need to yeah. have these categories. But it sounds like from your perspective and from your research, it's when we basically assume that these categories are all that are important and we're not taking into consideration all of the other socioeconomic psychosocial factors that are coming into play and we're um, really bastardizing the research because we've oversimplified it and yes absolutely 100 percent. you said that very beautifully and more importantly as mental health professionals to know that when we focus on weight only mental health like takes a deep dive into the darkest part of the well. Because what happens when we focus only on weight is a person starts to restrict their food. When a person restricts their food, they go crazy. So that's the other part of all of this is that you cannot be sane and starving at the same time. And if you start to restrict your food, you can't think straight and you become obsessed with food and body shape. And this is why I always say that like not everybody who goes on a diet gets an eating disorder, but nobody has an eating disorder who never went on a diet because 
starvation is trauma. Starvation is trauma to your body and to your brain. And it can take years and years and years. And I know from experience and then working with clients to get over that trauma. And so often we uh, we think that somebody's just like obsessed with food or obsessed with their body, but that obsession with food and body is a direct result of the starvation that they endured. And a lot of times that starvation was prescribed by a medical professional and starvation is bad for everybody. It doesn't matter if that body has a lot of fat on it. Starvation is still bad. Your body doesn't know whether you are, you know, trying to lose weight so that you can, you know, have surgery or if we're in a famine, your body doesn't know the difference. And no matter what, starvation is always trauma to your body and to your brain. And shame is always trauma to your body and your brain. And being shamed because your body is the quote unquote wrong size is horrible. And so that's why Lindy West talks about this a lot. Lindy West is so such an incredible like fat liberation author and activist. Um, and she talks about like, if you claim to care about a fat person's health and you do not care about their mental health, you are a liar. And I completely believe that because as a culture, we're so concerned with fat people's health, but no, we're not because we're constantly shaming them and telling them to look different and telling them to do terrible things to their bodies so that their bodies will be more acceptable for us to look at. I have so many questions about everything you just <laughs> said. Um, so going back to this imaginary client, and mm -hmm. let's pretend they said, yes, my doctor did these tests and my triglycerides are up and my cholesterol has gone up and my fasting blood sugar is higher and now it's in the mm -hmm. high pre-diabetes pre range. What do you, Paula, then focus mm -hmm. on in session with that person? Um, so then I focus on two things, right? Like I need, I need my client to know that, that there is no proven workable way to make a fat body into a small body. I mean, that's the other part too, is that, that, that there, you know, there is no way that has been proven to make a, sm a large body into a small body. Um, which is why the other reason why it's insanely irresponsible for us to continue to tell fat people to to starve themselves because it does not work. You know, diets are the only the only thing that's <clears throat> ninety five to ninety eight percent failure rate that right. that we continue to tell people to do. Um, and so then I tell this client, uh, okay, great. So tell me about ways you love to move your body. Tell me about like ways that move like movement that feels good to you. That tell me about like is there movement that you can do where your head doesn't fill with shameful thoughts, that your head doesn't fill with with and and what does that feel like? Then we talk about food. Tell me foods that you love. Tell me foods that like you can enjoy that you can slow down cuz so often what happens is somebody has been prescribed weight loss, they have starved themselves, um, the body's biological response to starvation is eating more than their body needs, which is, of course, right? Like, if you starve yourself of sleep, you're going to oversleep. If you starve yourself of water, you're going to drink too much water. If you starve yourself of food, you're going to overeat. So tell me about foods that you just love, that when you're eating them, you can taste every bite. And like, how do we slow down and really enjoy? If you're going to eat a box of Oreos, wonderful. I want you to taste every bite. I want you to turn off the TV. I want you to like be alone. I want you to light candles. I want you and those Oreos to become one, right? Like how are we going to slow this down? So everything is from a place of love and everything is from a place of you deserve to move your bodies in ways that you enjoy. You deserve to enjoy food because food is such an incredible part of being a human, <laughs> Eating is so great. Eating is so fun. Eating is so emotional. I hate the idea that we should all not eat emotionally. That's such nonsense. Um, so again, coming from this place of love and coming from this place of, no, I don't care what shape your body is, right? Like every person deserves to have peace and freedom and sanity when it comes to food in their body. Every single person. And I will help my client get to that point their body shape may not change. And I could not care less. Um, but I promise you, if they release the shame, and if they start treating themselves with love and compassion, their health improves, because you can't take care of a body that you've been shamed to, 
being ashamed to have. If you've been taught to be ashamed of your body, how are you going to take good care of it? I remember seeing a quote, and I don't remember where it originated, but a number of years ago, that was something to the effect of, you know, I've never met anybody that shamed themselves into self-love. Yeah. And it just always stuck with me. And so I'm going to extrapolate something here. So Mm -hmm. we know that the average weight of Americans continues to go up. So when we look Mm -hmm. over the past number of decades, we see that that's going up. Not trying to get stuck in the trap of oversimplifying that. Yeah. I'm going to go out on a limb here and guess that your perspective on this is the increase really. So if we're looking at the studies about, say, stress and weight retention, stress and blood sugar, that a lot of this is coming from a highly stress-oriented, productivity-focused culture. And basically, we are traumatized, stressing ourselves out more. And that is what's making us, quote unquote, fat, not because we're lazy, lacking self-control, we're not active, these other things. Am I right about that assumption? Okay. Yeah. So tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah. So when I teach my class, I do a whole section on like, you know, because I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> deny the reality that, that as a whole, Americans' bodies are bigger than they were a hundred years ago. Um, but we're also taller than we were a hundred years ago, but I, um, that's okay. Uh, I, I do I do acknowledge that that is the reality. Um, but there are so many other things, right? Like it's it's so uh, to say that it's just because, you know, of TGI Fridays and and laziness is is so crazy. Um, you know, part of the, one of the reasons is that bodies tend to get bigger when we don't sleep enough. Um, Americans don't sleep enough. You know, we have tiny computers in our hands and we're constantly staring at them and we don't, we do not sleep. Um, we're constantly working. Um, we're constantly told that we need to be more productive. You know, the, the rate of eating disorders in cultures in which it's still the tradition to sit down and eat with humans at every meal is so low. We, for us, we completely have, we have capitalized food to such a degree that we don't value meals. We don't value, like to eat with other humans is such a sacred thing that has been done for thousands of years. And as a culture, we don't do it anymore, right? We eat crap uh, in our car while we're r- running from place to place so that we can prove how valuable we are, right? The, um, and the other reason why I truly believe why our bodies are bigger than they used to be is because of diets. Diets make bodies bigger. Diets do not make bodies smaller. Diets make bodies bigger. You know, over and over and over, every single study has shown if you go on a diet, which is starvation. Again, your body doesn't know the difference. A diet is starvation. If you are restricting food in a uh, attempt to make your body eat itself so it's smaller, that is trauma. And you will probably eat more than your body needs afterwards. And your body will get bigger as a way to defend itself right. from the next time there is a famine. An evolutionary program this that's been activated. Biological, exactly. This is a biological response to starvation. And so I believe bodies are bigger because we're obsessed with thinness. I believe that we are bigger because we go on diets. Diet culture is a $70 billion a year business. And that and so it's capitalism it's the obsession with thinness that's why we we hate our bodies we're disconnected from our bodies we're shameful of our bodies we we try to starve them so we try to we you know um uh Roxane Gay uses the the term unruly bodies right um we try mm. to whip them into shape and the more we do that the more they react right bodies are exceedingly responsive and the reaction to all of that shame and restriction and pain and suffering is to get bigger and it's trying to save itself it's trying to defend right it's right. it's on the i say to my clients it's trying to survive your body famine. Is on, exactly your body's on your side it's doing such a good job of surviving such a good job i want to go back to one of the points that you just made because it reminded me of research that i remember seeing a number of years ago so that statistic that you gave about the rate of eating disorders in countries where um you know, com- compared 
to others about where people value sitting down and having communal meals. Yeah. I, I've worked with adolescents for pretty much my whole mental health treatment career and remember reading research about the protective nature and of family meals and that families who had more family meals weekly, the children and adolescents had a lower is- incidence of mental health problems and substance use disorders. And I, I don't specifically remember eating disorders, but obviously there's, there's something there too. Um, right. But this idea that we've gotten so far away from the way that humans were basically designed to be and our yeah. pack animal ways and that the more we dive into social media, the more that we focus on productivity, that we get away from the tens of thousands of years that have created us to be a certain way and it's kind of mm-hmm. broken us. And it's like we, we're we breaking yeah. the program because our lifestyles don't match what our bodies and brains are, and emotions are designed to do. <sighs> Completely. Completely. And, you know, we also like live in little bubbles, right? Like people live, you know, we don't, we don't, uh, you know, in the 50s, we all learned that we had to like make a nuclear family and live in this little box and you live in that little box, right? And, and specifically during the pandemic, right? Everybody's been talking about how like, oh my God, I'm eating so much in the pandemic. And, you know, all, I don't know about you, but all of my clients who live alone, the pandemic has been horrific yeah. because it's just not how human beings are meant to live. And that's exactly what I've said to them. I was like, there's, there's no world where we were designed to be in our own little caves by ourselves and then sometimes no. stand at the mouth of the cave and wave to somebody and then go back in like that. We were never designed to do that. No. And and I like the way you said that, that like we are designed to eat together, that it is it that is how our brains, our little pack animal brains, our little lizard brains are meant to live is to, you know, and I, I don't know about you, like just this past um, couple months, you know, my partner and I live together in, a, in, in an apartment in, in D.C., but, uh, you know, all, a bunch of my like I have a, 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 a chosen family and we uh, all got tested and came together and we've been living in a house together in, in Palm Springs. And some of the meal times have been so wonderful, like six of us sitting together, breaking bread together. There is something so primal and so filling and so fulfilling about that. And it's just not what we do as a culture. And I I believe absolutely that, you know, you can't sit around and connect with people and um, and be laughing and telling stories and eating together and be like hating yourself and hating your body and counting calories and all of that at the same time. This concept, I think what you're talking about is is really actually quite simple, but is also earth shattering (laughs) in this idea that when we're just looking at body shape, at weight, at quote unquote BMI, at these things that we're so conditioned to look at, we have grossly oversimplified this. And one of my takeaways from what you've said is basically like zoom out clinically zoom out, personally zoom out and recognize the confluence of factors that have come together to make you behave the way that you do, to make you believe the things that you do. And then for us as clinicians, we take in that information, we look in the mirror, we evaluate our messages when we have a bite of cheesecake, whatever it is. And mm-hmm. then the next step for us is then what does this do to how I'm treating a client in my office, to how I receive them and how I even look at their body when they're sitting in front of me or how we talk about their body. One of the things that I've caught a few times while you've been talking, you talk about um, talk about bodies in a way that there's this element of implied ownership. Yes. And it's really subtle in the way that you do that. But can you can you talk a bit about number one, how did you learn to do that? And <laughs> And why do you do that? Because I'm sure it's something you do very deliberately. Oh, very deliberately. Yes. I mean, part of the body justice movement is the autonomy, right? That like, I have autonomy over my body, you have a right? I think, because I lived in I've lived in a fat body for many years, I know what it's like to when you live in a fat body, everybody seems to have ownership, everybody gets to have an opinion about it. It's it's everybody gets to tell you what you should be yeah. doing. Um, it's a violation, right? And I talk, I, I, again, I use hyperbolic terms on purpose, right? Like it is violent 
what we do to people in fat bodies. We violate their boundaries. We violate them all the time because somehow we, the whole world gets to have an opinion about their body, right? And somehow when my body got thin, all of a sudden I got to have ownership over it. And all of a sudden people like assumed that I knew what to do with it and I did not. Um, <laughs> but but that that thin people are have the privilege, you know, we talk about thin privilege a lot in 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 body justice talk. Um th- because the the privilege of being thin is that um there is this idea that thin people get to have ownership over their bodies because they're doing it right. But fat people everybody gets to own their body because they're doing it wrong. Obviously they're doing it wrong. And so, yeah, I do, I do do that very deliberately that, that everybody has autonomy and everybody gets to do whatever they want with their body. It's such a, it's really subtle in the way that you do it, you do it, but I've picked it up a number of times. And I think there's a lot of obviously your experience, but so much wisdom in Mm -hmm. the way that you are, (laughs) <laughs> it's going to sound like an odd comparison, but it's kind of like, well, here's your house plant. You know, like, are you going yes. to water it? Are you going to make sure it gets adequate sunlight? And that we're so accustomed, particularly, I think, for female identifying people and for, you know, uh, people of lower socioeconomic status, of non-white individuals, I think we've been conditioned to everybody else's ownership about our bodies. And if we're breaking the rules about whatever the patriarchal white um, upper middle class society has told us, then shame on us. And so our body has been theirs. And I I remember um, when I interviewed Dr. Jamita Barlow, we talked about the sexualization of of women's bodies, of girls' bodies, particularly of girls of color, and these ideas that their bodies no longer are theirs and they belong to somebody else. And so I I really like that language that you use. It reinforces the autonomy um, and this ownership. And um, I think it it, it's subtle, but it's a really powerful shift in the room. And so I thank you. I just I definitely just learned something and even being more aware of that concept. Um, Yeah. We've talked about a lot during our time together today. Your goal in coming to talk with me about this was really to increase awareness in clinicians about our own internalized biases and belief systems, and then how that's going to carry over in how we interact with people in the world at large and how we interact with our clients. Mm-hmm. For people that are hearing this and are like nodding along, <laughs> how do... like? Where do they start growing their knowledge and digging in more to this topic? Because all we've had is an hour. So for people who yeah. want to learn more, where do, where do they do that? How do they do that? Where do they start? So one of the best places to start is the health at every size. Um, you know, Lindo Bacon um, is an incredible doctor in San Francisco, and they have just been doing such great work for a long time. And that's just a really great work place to start because if you if you really liked my rant about BMI and how ridiculous it is then you will love health at every size because it really does break down and you can even go to their website and they have a health at every size manifesto and it breaks down these are the beliefs we have about weight and this is why it's not right and you know and at the bottom they lay out like you know how how is it that our beliefs are so different from what science shows us. And, you know, the answer to that question is always economics, right? The the answer to that question is always capitalism. The answer to that question is always people make a lot of money off of us all believing that fat bodies are wrong. Yeah. And the belief that all bodies can and should be thin and white, but mostly thin. Um, so th- that's a great place to start. You know, the you were you I I appreciate your appreciation of my of talking about body ownerships and and the autonomy, but a lot of that I stole from Sonia Renee Taylor, who is an incredible person. Um, but her book, The Body Is Not an Apology, is just absolutely beautiful, and it will strike everybody to the core. While you were talking about that, one of the things that also occurred to me was an extension of the book. It didn't start with you. And so understanding like the complexity of generational trauma and how much this is carried forward, stored in our genes, if we experienced abuse, traumas, famine, 
then our yes. bodies are designed to store fat. <laughs> like they're in, yes. so I, I can hear how, again, there's this confluence of these concepts coming together. Um, absolutely. In appreciating, again, just that zooming out phenomenon. And it sounds like with that resource you just recommended, it's again that zooming out. Absolutely. Zo- she zooms way out in a really beautiful way. Yeah. And then, you know, Christy Harrison's new book, The Anti-Diet. Um, I love uh, Rebecca Stritchfield is somebody who lives in my area. Her book, uh, Body Kindness. There's a lot of incredible, mostly female identifying people who are doing just really magical work right now. Wonderful. And Paula, I mean, this this time with you, I'm so glad that we got to have this conversation. For folks that are listening and want to learn more about you, you and your work and your teaching, how do they do that? How do they get in touch with you? So you can go to my website, pauladatkinson.com. Um, you can follow me. I'm Paula D. Atkinson on all of the social medias. Um, I am, I'm working on my own book, which I uh, hope to be out someday. <laughs> um, it's so, so hard to uh, keep going on that. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I run body liberation support groups and they're all virtual right now. Um, and so I have one for people who live in marginalized um, and or fat bodies and one for people who live in all sorts of sized bodies. Um, so, yeah. Wonderful. I have learned so much, Paula. Thank you for coming here and sharing a topic, not only that you know so well, but that is so important to you. Thank you. This has been really great. It's been wonderful to have you. Thanks. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.